Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. Good morning. The scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, church. I am glad to be with you all today. We got just a classic Christmas pas- uh, passage there. Uh, kings being laid to waste, you know, lots of fun. So uh, today is December 18th, which means we are one week out from Christmas. And if you are like me, I'm sure that you are thinking a lot about the things that you have left to do in this last week before Christmas. Maybe you have presents that you need to buy or to wrap. Um, You're too late for Amazon, right? Uh, Maybe you're having family staying with you. You need to clean your house. Maybe you are traveling and you haven't packed yet. Maybe you're figuring out what to do with your kids at home this week. What are you going to do with them? And all of this, I'm sure, is playing in the back of your mind right now. But hopefully for you this morning as we mark this fourth Sunday of Advent together in this space that that you would have a few moments of peace, a, a moment to sit back, rest, and take a deep breath and hopefully encounter in the Spirit of God as we listen and dive into God's Word today. For these past few weeks, it has been interesting to be in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Isaiah, as we're in this season of Advent. I, in your head, you know, you don't always correlate kind of Old Testament or, or uh, prophetic passages uh, with Advent, but really, we should. In the Old Testament, specifically, again, as we're examining a prophetic book like Isaiah, we see this longing, we see this expectation for the future king and Messiah. We see hints and whispers of Jesus coming. And today, we are going to examine the idea of trust, of what does it mean to put your trust in someone. The question of, do you trust me? Do you, do you trust me? It's actually a, a movie trope that we see time and time and again, right? An, an idea that comes up frequently in so many of our favorite stories. It often goes down like this. Let's say we have, we have two characters. Let's call them, I don't know, Kip and Pete, all right? And, uh, and they are in danger. They, they, are, they are in danger, but Kip 
has a plan to get out of it, but he, he needs Pete to trust him in order for it to work. Maybe, maybe Pete needs to jump off a cliff and trust that Kip is going to catch him. Maybe Pete needs to act as a distraction for the bad guy and trust that Kip is gonna sneak up behind him and tackle him, right? In the midst of all of this craziness, Kip will have to ask Pete, this is the pivotal moment of the movie, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Trust me enough to jump. Trust me enough to be that distraction. It will be on Pete to decide yes or no. Sometimes in movies or shows, it's less about danger and more about establishing trust in a relationship. Uh, we see this trope in a story like Aladdin. Any Aladdin fans out there, right? You guys remember the story, yeah? Both as himself, as Aladdin, and as Prince Ali, he asked Jasmine if she trusts him and, in the, and trust him to make a decision. And it, it, will she trust him? Will she step onto that magic carpet? That's how they, endanger, or they engender their trust to one another. We also see this in Titanic with Jack and Rose, right? At the front of the ship, Jack asks Rose, you know, close your eyes. Step up there, step on the railing. Do you trust me that I will keep you safe? She does, she lets go. She ends up opening her eyes. She, pr she proves the trust that he asks of her. Now I would argue that, Jack, that her, uh, Jack's trust in Rose was a bit misplaced. I mean, she didn't give him enough room on that raft at the end, but you know, he's just drowning, you know, but whatever. That's a story for another time. We see it, uh, you see it in movies like The Godfather, right? You know, Don Corleone asks, do you trust me? Do you have faith in me? Do you rely on me? Do I have your loyalty? If so, show me by your choices. Show me by your actions. That is what is happening when we choose to trust someone, that we act differently because of it. Whether you realize it or not, this passage is actually about trust. Now, again, if, when you heard this first passage, when I heard this first passage, I'm like, what is going on here, right? Uh, who is Ahaz? I don't know that name. It's not like, you know, Moses or one of these big names that we know. Not one of the significant players in the story of Scripture. Probably thinking, what is going on? It certainly seems like this story has already started and that we are jumping in partway with where our text begins today. If you look at verse 10, the first verse in our lectionary begins like this. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. So if something is happening enough to be again, that means that there is something that happened before this that might give us a clue as to what is going on. In order to do that, we're going to need to look at the first nine verses of this chapter of Isaiah to give us the proper context. And, and here's the thing. I don't know how I always end up with these passages. Um, <laughs> it just happens that way. But in order to make sense of what is going on here, we are going to need a quick history lesson. Who liked history in school? Okay, we got some. Who hated history in school? Sorry, this is going to be tough, okay? You're, you're just, hopefully we can change your mind, all right? So uh, if you have a Bible, you can follow along the beginning of chapter 7 there, but I'm going to summarize it because it's pretty confusing. It's lots of names of people and places. So here's what's happening. These verses are set against a larger backdrop of 8th century, we're talking BC here, international politics. And what you need to know about the current reality, of the, this current political reality, is at the time, the kingdom of Israel has been split into two kingdoms, all right? There's the northern kingdom and there's the southern kingdom. Approximately around 975 BC, after the death of Solomon, there's a name that we know, right? It's one of those big ones. His son Rehoboam ascended the throne. He levied huge taxes. People didn't really care for him, so it caused a split. The tribe of Judah and most of the tribe of Benjamin accepted him as their king, and he remained the king of the southern kingdom, or what we call Judah. 
However, the other 10 tribes chose Jeroboam as their king. Rehoboam, Jeroboam, again, told you, it's confusing. This northern kingdom was referred to as Israel or is also known by the name Ephraim. And so this meant that God's people were divided between two different kingdoms, Israel slash Ephraim to the north, capitals in Samaria, and to the south was Judah with the capital in Jerusalem. We got a map here for you, all right? Generally speaking, the southern kingdom there was a little bit more faithful to Yahweh, still uh, not great. And at the time of our story, Pekah is the king of the northern kingdom, and Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom. The other king mentioned in Isaiah 7 here is King Rezin of Aram, which we would call Syria, but on our next slide, you'll see that Aram is circled there. The capital here is in Damascus, and these folks typically do not get along with the northern kingdom, the people just, they're they're neighbors, they're just to the west. Um, But the big bad guy at this point in the story is the kingdom of Assyria. So we got another map for you. As you can see, Assyria is huge. You can see there are little dots there for Judah and Israel. Assyria is the superpower. The northern kingdom and Aram, they have both been threatened by this huge kingdom of Assyria. They've, they've become threatened so much that they've become vassals to Assyria and its king. Assyria's king is called Tiglath-Pileser III. So I call him TP3, okay? Right? It's like RG3, TP3, it's a lot easier to say, okay? So, so they ostensibly get to keep their lands, but they are responsible for offering tribute and support to Assyria. But eventually, this northern kingdom and Aram, they become strange bedfellows, even though they don't like each other. It's an Israelite kingdom and a non-Israelite kingdom because they decide to work together to resist this huge superpower of Assyria. They want Judah to join their team. Hey, we're fighting back against the big bad guy. Would you join our team? And Judah says, no. We're not interested in getting into that fight. And so after Judah says no to joining them in this fight, Israel and Aram, they decide to attack Judah with the goal of replacing Ahaz, their king right now, with a puppet leader who would be more sympathetic to their cause and fight back against Assyria. Does that make sense? All right? So the alliance of Israel and Aram, they've now marched up to Jerusalem, and Ahaz and the people of Judah are terrified. Verse 2 of chapter 7 says their hearts were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. In the midst of this fear, Ahaz, he's inspecting the defenses of the city. He's making sure that their access to water uh, is okay. This will become important with someone named Hezekiah later in Isaiah. But God sends Isaiah the prophet to meet with Ahaz and to reassure him that everything is going to be okay. All right? Keep calm and don't be afraid. That is what God says through Isaiah to Ahaz, to not lose heart. God tells Ahaz that that these two kingdoms that have marched to Jerusalem, they are just like smoldering stubs of firewood. They are going to burn out soon. They are not going to last tonight. That their plot is merely a manipulation. While they may make you sick with dread, now in a short time their lands will be empty. We get a call back at the end of our passage. They are on their own path of destruction. Oh yeah, and that that problem that you see just outside your gates, you don't need to worry about it. They are going to fall apart. I will take care of them. But there's just one thing that I need from you. There is one thing that I need from you. And the second half of verse 9, which is the concluding verse before our text officially starts today, is this. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. 
If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. We see that whether Ahaz and his people stand or fall depends entirely on whether he trusts God and what God says. It depends on his faith in God. That, that this is the point of our movie, right? That, that the enemies are at the gates. Judah is surrounded. Ahaz hears from God, do you trust me? Just trust me and I will take care of it. And Ahaz, as a leader, he has to sit between several different tensions. First, he has a responsibility to seek the welfare of his people. He has to make you know, political judgments right? That, that will lead to national security, health, and life, things that often require a military or a diplomatic resolution. But he's also not just the king of a small nation who needs to think practically and politically for his people. He is heir to the house of David. This unique king has a responsibility to learn and to keep God's law. Moses promised that the king who resists pride and, and never turns from the law will have a long reign. God promised to the house of David an eternal dynasty so long as his descendants hold fast to the covenant to God's teaching. So military and diplomatic solutions don't always line up with God's covenant teaching for his people in the Old Testament. It says if you make an alliance with a foreign nation, you often end up worshiping that foreign nation's God. If you seek help from another nation instead of trusting that I will provide, what does that say? This, this is the backdrop of how our text begins today. And Ahaz has just, again, heard from God through Isaiah that, that he and the people of Judah will be delivered from their enemies if he would just put his trust in God and stand firm in his faith. But we don't see a response from Ahaz to this piece of advice from Isaiah. So the text begins, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. So God offers yet another sign to Ahaz, only this time it is one of Ahaz's own choosing, which in and of itself is a pretty stunning statement. God seems to make divine power available to Ahaz in a, in a seemingly limitless manner. It's almost as if God is saying, you know, treat me like a genie, all right? This is another Aladdin reference somehow, but treat me like a genie. I will give you a sign, any sign that you want. You can have phenomenal cosmic power without the itty-bitty living space. But this offer, this outlandish offer shows that God is willing to do anything to secure Ahaz's faith in him. I mean, God says, ask me for a sign. I don't care what it is, anything. I got all kinds of signs. I got all kinds of signs you can use. I can, I can make the dead come to life, which will happen in Isaiah 26. I can show you a sign in the sky like the sun and the moon in Genesis 1, or my bow in the clouds is a sign of covenant with creation in Genesis 9. I gave Moses uh, and his people signs, and they believed in the book of Exodus. I worked signs in Egypt to make it known that I have the power to save both in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Any sign, you name it, I'll do it. And what's Ahaz's response? Now I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Verse 12 says, but Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. You know, and on the surface, this seems like a... It might be a righteous response from Ahaz. Maybe he knows the law given by Moses where it said, do not put your Lord, the Lord your God, to the test. But really, this stinks of false piety. It's Ahaz saying, oh, don't go to all that trouble for me. I, you know, I, I wouldn't dare ask for a sign. No, I wouldn't do that. But God is saying, trust me. 
He cries it. He proclaims it. He shows. He says, I will do anything for you to trust me. But Ahaz does not take him up on God's invitation to trust. And this seemingly pious and humble move is actually the evidence of kind of a slippery and shady character. So the text continues like this. Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. As you see, uh, Isaiah does not applause Ahaz's refusal. He says that you have already used up the patience of the people that you've been trusted with, and now you are doing the same to God. God is, God is offering to replenish the well for him, to do anything to secure Ahaz's trust and belief in him, and Ahaz refuses. So why? Why would Ahaz refuse God's help in this situation? Well, the narrative that's happening in our text also happens in another part of Scripture, in the book of 2 Kings. And there we learn why Ahaz has decided not to put his trust in God, because he has already concocted a plan. What he will end up doing is reaching out to our guy, TP3, right, the king of Assyria, for help instead. He sends a letter to TP3, and he says, If you take care of Israel and Aram, my enemies for me, I will submit to you as your servant Judah will be vassals to Assyria. He even sends gold and silver that he has taken from the temple. And so the king of Assyria says yes to this offer. He neutralizes the threat from Israel and Aram. And after this, Ahaz, he goes to meet with this king, his new lord. He sees him making sacrifices on an altar to another god. And what does Ahaz do? He returns home. He takes precious metals that he strips from the very temple itself and makes a copy of the altar that was being used in Assyria. He replaces the altar that was in the temple with this new one. Because Ahaz made the determination that it was easier to sell himself to Assyria than wait for salvation from God. Even though God has offered a sign, even though God has made it clear that the house of David, of which Ahaz is a part, will receive long-term support from God himself, Ahaz chooses his own plan instead. So even though he says, I don't want a sign, God gives a sign anyways. And it's a sign, which we see this sign and we're like, I know that one, okay? This is like the Leo DiCaprio meme. He says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. And now this sign, it has a uh, present reality to its original time and original context and a future reality. In Ahaz's time, uh, the sign was kind of ambiguous. Who is it referring, who is this woman? Who is this child? And while we don't know exactly, we do know that by the time that this child is born, the crisis that preoccupies Ahaz will be over that the enemy kings and their lands will be laid waste, that deliverance will come not through alliance or military might, but through divine intervention and a God who keeps his promises. But we're really interested in the future reality of this sign. The lectionary text for the gospel today comes from Matthew 1. Uh, it's where an angel has appeared to Joseph. Just like when God sent Isaiah to calm the fears of Ahaz, he has sent the angel who tells Joseph to not be afraid. He tells Joseph of the coming birth of Jesus, uh, but then in Matthew 1, 22 and 23, it says this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. 
While Ahaz did not heed the sign that was given by God through Isaiah, we learned that this message did not go unheard. It echoed throughout the centuries until Matthew recorded this same invitation to trust, this invitation to trust that Ahaz was offered, God offers to Joseph. But this time, Joseph says yes. And more importantly, this, this same invitation was issued to Mary when the angel Gabriel came to her. And there, Gabriel said, not only do not be afraid, but he took and he intensified this Emmanuel promise of Isaiah with an intimate proclamation, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. And this title of Emmanuel, it's a title we sure are familiar with, right? In Advent and Christmas, we just sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And sometimes, if I'm honest, I just brush over Emmanuel. That's part of that song. Yeah, it's great. It's this idea of God with us. God with us. God, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the all-wise, all-creating, all-holy, all-loving God, the completely faithful, relentlessly merciful, and utterly good God. The triune community who was and is and always will be loved, the ruler who loves righteousness and justice, the deliverer who takes up the cause of the widow and the orphan, the sojourner, the captive, and the poor. That's the God, but not just God, but the God who comes to be with, so close like, like a parent holding their child or the lonely finally finding comfort in one another. And it's a God who comes to be with us. Not us as we should be, but us as we are. He welcomes us into the righteous robes of heaven by first robing himself in tenuous flesh, in a body that got sore and tired and hungry, a body that needed to be nursed and needed to have his diaper changed. He's born among animals to a people under the boot of an empire and a family shunned for his conception. He comes for them and he comes for you and he comes for me because he is God with us. And we don't know exactly what the prophecy meant for Isaiah and Ahaz, and, and we're still working out what it entirely means for us. Because the sign that was given in Isaiah and that we have experienced in the coming of Jesus, it certainly arouses hope in us. But it also opens up the gap between what the world is and what the world ought to be. And maybe that's why we're reading about it in Advent, the, the season of the church calendar where we recognize this profound chasm we see that there is this focused contrast between the world's actuality and God's ought to be. It's this time between the times that we currently reside in, knowing that God has come and is coming and will work to redeem and reconcile all things, but we are not there yet. We're still in the grit and the grime. We're still in the dark. That In Advent, we're, we're called to face these vulnerabilities of time and place that the sign that God promises to the world and to the church, this, this Emmanuel, this God with us, it evokes unexpected hope. But when we look around our world, sometimes a call to hope, it feels like a call to hope against all evidence. But Advent is about God beginning to break in, of, of seeing the first cracks, and ultimately, it is about who we will put our trust in. In the midst of armies and politics and alliances and babies and prophecies and signs, again, this is a story about faith. It's a story about trust. It's a story about reliance. It, it hinges on these things as will Ahaz, on behalf of himself and the people of Judah, put their faith in God? Or will they put their faith in their own plans, in their own power, in their own schemes? 
I like what Walter Brueggemann says about the role that faith plays in this story. He says this, faith is not a matter of intellectual content or cognitive belief. It is rather a matter of quite practical reliance upon the assurance of God in a context of risk where one's own resources are not adequate. It means to entrust one's security and future to the attentiveness of Yahweh, to count God's attentiveness as adequate and sure, thereby making panic, uneasiness, or foolishness unnecessary and inappropriate. It is to know oneself safe in risk because of an attending other whose resources are mobilized and whose commitments are unfailing. It is to place oneself into the reliable care of another. And Brueggemann gets at something here. You know, what, what is faith? You know, we're talking about trust and faith. Is it a right set of beliefs? Sure. That, that is absolutely one part of faith and trust. Many of you utilize some of our liturgical prayer guides we've created. We, we use them in our staff prayer time together. And as a part of that prayer time, we recite the Apostles' Creed. We, we are confessing a set of beliefs of where we put our faith. But even more than that, our text today is describing the idea of having faith as relying on and putting your trust in God and living differently because of it. That it's not just a a mental or ethereal idea. And it's important that this happened during a situation of war because the invitation to choose faith over fear for these individuals was not a choice when everything was going well. You know, this wasn't an invitation to complacency. The text shows us today that precisely in situations where circumstances dictate that we choose fear, in conflict, in danger, in war, in hopelessness, in pain, in doubting, in getting fired, in losing a loved one, that instead we can choose to put our trust in God and rely on Him. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, things are going to be peachy, Right? But we do know that God does not stay far off in the midst of whatever we're facing. We saw that despite Ahaz's refusal of a sign, God still showed him steadfastness, steadfast faithfulness and grace. And that when the world needed a sign that that God would change everything for everyone all at once, God came as Emmanuel, the surest sign that he would not stay far off, the surest sign that we could place our trust in him. That no matter what is going on, God is working. That God is working in wars and politics and international conflicts, but God is working in pregnancies, he's working in prophecies, and God is working in plans made long ago that come to fruition in the birth of Jesus, and he's still working and operating on our behalf as we work towards the reconciliation of all things. And so if this passage is about faith and trust, I I wonder what that means for us today in this season of Advent, in this last week before Christmas, or even as we begin a new year in January, of what might it look like for you to rely on God in your work? Does it look like finally quitting that job? Does it look like stepping out in faith and pursuing that other one? Does it look like setting an example for your coworkers? Or what would it look like for us to, to put our reliance on God, to put our trust in God in our relationships? Whether at home with friends and your family, what might it look like to trust God with your relationships? Could it be finally ending a relationship you know to be toxic? Could it be offering forgiveness to someone that hurts you and trusting that God is working behind the scenes? What might it look like for you to rely on God with your finances? 
of living a life of generosity and trusting that God will provide for you, of relinquishing the control that money has on you and trusting and relying on God instead. What might it look like to live out a life of, of trust and reliance of God in issues of justice, of how you treat your neighbors, of, of how you interact with the houseless? What might it look like to demonstrate your trust in God by living with the rest of creation in mind, of consuming less, of, of choosing to care for the planet rather than abusing it? What might it look like to trust God with your time and practice Sabbath, to choose rest over worry, to pause and trust that God is working even if you are resting? When I look back at this story, there's, there's part of me that gets pretty judgmental of Ahaz. I mean, you have a literal prophet speaking to your face, telling you to trust, okay? God has sent Isaiah and is speaking to you right here, telling you that things are gonna be all right, that you don't need to come up with this crazy plot or scheme, that God has you. You know, if I were in his sandals, <laughs> of course I would trust, right? You know, if I, if I, were, if I were in his situation, of course I would trust. Well, if we gave Ahaz the same kind of opportunity to uh, look at our situation, opportunity to judge us, he might say, well, you have Emmanuel. You have, you have God with you. You have a God who came and is speaking and working on your behalf every single day, a God who is with you, and you still choose to choose your, trust yourselves more than to trust God. Because what we see in the story today and the prophecy that was fulfilled is that God is gonna do anything to secure our trust and belief in him. He'll offer a sign. He'll say, you know, what sign do you want, Ahaz? He'll provide deliverance from enemies. And most importantly, he'll come into the world as a baby. And that baby will grow and that baby will go to the cross for you and me. And God is saying, I'm asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to trust me when there are armies surrounding you. I'm asking you to trust me that I will come myself in the form of a baby. And I'm asking you to trust me that I am making all things new and reconciling all things. I'm asking you to trust me with everything you are, with everything that you experience in every moment, in every situation, every relationship, in every part of your life. Would you trust me? Would you put your reliance on me? And as we begin to place our trust in him, as we choose to rely on him more and more, we'll see that big wars and all pale in comparison to the birth of a child in humble circumstances in Nazareth, that nothing can compare with a God who comes to us and lives with us and feels our experiences like us, that kingdoms and rulers and fears and inadequacies and plans and figuring things all out on ourselves fall away and fade away at the coming of Christ. And so, Antioch family, may we be a people who choose to put our trust in God by living lives that, that show evidence of our reliance on him and in so doing encounter Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.